The time is now. Volume 5, Episode 91. This is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, your host and the Vice Chair of Labor and Employment at Cozen O'Connor. The only thing better than one entire episode with the EEOC Commissioner is a second one back-to-back. Commissioner Keith Sonderling of the EEOC was gracious enough to uh, spend a lot of time talking about things that are impacting employers and employees from an EEOC perspective, and we continue that discussion today talking about, among other things, some hot topics to look for in 2021, where the EEOC may be going in the coming months and years, and what the commissioner thinks about current EEOC perception. Commissioner Sonderling, uh, I, again, I really appreciate it, not only giving us uh, one episode, but uh, two separate episodes of your time. So thank you so much. My pleasure. We uh, ended our last part of the discussion talking about EEOC guidance, and it's uh, a good segue to the next topic, which what I want to get into, uh, which is uh, opinion letters from the EEOC. I think most people think about opinion letters and think about the Department of Labor uh, issuing opinion letters and using them uh, historically. I think a lot of people are not as used to seeing opinion letters coming from the EEOC, uh, which also dovetails nicely to what we started with in the last episode, and that was your background at the Department of Labor. Um, I guess tell us before we get into some of the specifics, what's your sense of the EEOC's decision to uh, perhaps come back to opinion letters, use them more frequently? And, you know, how, what's been uh, the relationship between the EEOC's use and the Department of Labor's use? Right. Yeah. So um, opinion letters are near and dear to my heart. When I first started at the Department of Labor, at the Wage and Hour Division in 2017, the, uh, the secretary had just announced that they were bringing back the issuance of opinion letters. So, you know, um, when you do think of opinion letters, you think of DOL and you think of wage and hour. And opinion letters were in use for over 70 years, and they were discontinued in 2009 at DOL in favor of broader guidance called administrator interpretations where they weren't in response to a specific question. It was just the administrator at the time opining on a topic. And um, so I was actually on the team that brought back opinion letters uh, at Department of Labor in 2017. And since then, um, I believe the final total was somewhere in the 70s uh, throughout the uh, Trump administration for opinion letters. And, you know, I think that opinion letters, no matter what agency you're at, are, are so significant, not just for, you know, your typical management side lawyer who looks at them for an affirmative defense or to reasonably rely on them, you know, for that affirmative defense, more for guidance. And it's really for employees and employers um, because it, it asks, opinion letters ask a specific fact pattern and you literally get a response from the agency 
opining on that specific fact pattern saying, here's exactly what's right and here's exactly what's wrong. And what better tool for employees to look at and saying, well, here's the EEOC saying, you know, you're a wrong employer on this payroll practice and just employer and employee fix it. Or for employers to go out there and say, look, here is the EEOC, excuse me, here's the DOL or the EEOC saying, here's exactly how we would deal with it in an investigation. So um, it's really, opinion letters are great. They're authorized by statute. And, you know, as you said, uh, many people don't realize that the EEOC has that same opinion letter issuing authority. It's just a little different here, opposed to at DOL, where the wage and hour administrator can just sign one. Here, it requires a, uh, it rises to the level of a full commission vote. So there's normally, you know, in the opinion letters that have been issued so far, there's been a, a public hearing on them and an actual commission vote. Um, but the process is similar. We've created a portal, um, just like we did relaunching them at Wage and Hour for uh, employers and employees to submit opinion letters. You can find that on our website. And um, I'm just excited they're back here. Um, for the first time in 30 years, the EEOC issued four opinion letters this um, um, in 2020 and one in 2021. And a trivia question for you or your listeners out there. Um, this is the first, who was the chairman of the EEOC the last time issue, opinion letters were issued? Oh, I'm putting I'm you gonna, on the spot. I'm going to, yeah, you did. I'm going to, I'm going to pass on this. Okay. I will give you the answer or we'll, we'll wait five seconds for <laughs> listeners to figure it out. In our next Google. episode. We'll yeah. In our next episode, <laughs> maybe you could pause it here and they can win a prize um, from you if they get it right. But it was Supreme court justice, Clarence Thomas, when he was EEOC chair, he was the lat uh, prior to, um, 2020 was the last um, time the EEOC issued opinion letter. So why, why is that? I mean, why, why has it been 30 years? Is there uh, any real answer to that or no? I don't know. You know, I, I, I don't know. But what I, what I do know is we have the statutory authority to it, which is, you know, one of the biggest pieces of it. And I, I know we're doing it again. And um, I really hope that after this podcast, that all of you who are listening go to our website and submit opinion letters. Um, whatever your issue is, whether you're an employee or an employer, write into us, and I'm going to give you some examples of opinion letters, and you're going to see how valuable they are. Can so, they be submitted, um, can they be submitted um, anonymously? Um, generally, you know, they're, they're submitted, uh, well, we need to know who to respond to. So generally, you would want to, um, you know, especially for that, for that person submitting it to get that true defense, mm -hmm. you, you need that person. But, you know, a lot of times they can come in on behalf of individuals, whether it's a union writing in, whether it's an employee group writing in, whether it's a trade group writing in, whether it's a, a law firm writing in on behalf of their clients, hint, hint. So um, there's a lot of different ways to actually get it in the door. Okay. And so there have been, uh, you know, just to go through a few of them briefly, uh, four recent opinion letters. Yeah. I'd, I'd love you to start touching on a little bit. Sure. So the first one was about the Work Opportunity Tax Credit. And this is uh, the Work Opportunity Tax Credit is a program administered by the IRS. And, you know, I don't ask me about any of the tax implications of it. Um, I refuse to answer those. But so th what the Work Opportunity Tax Credit, it's a great program. And it essentially said there's 19 targeted groups of individuals, including veterans, those who have um, disability, people who have been um, convicted of a felon but are now eligible to... Um, participate in the workforce or people on SNAP programs. So it was a way for employers to get a tax incentive through this IRS form 8850, which again, outside my wheelhouse, um, to 
employers to be able to use this program, hire people who really need to get back in the workforce, who need that training and need these jobs, and the employer can get a tax credit for it. But the issue was to qualify for the tax credit, the law requires employers to obtain official confirmation of the job applicant's category, so where they are within that 19 targeted group before the employer extends a conditional job offer to the employment. We know uh, as employment lawyers and HR professionals, the EEOC has said you can't ask about an applicant's uh, medical status or any of these other statuses before offering a conditional job offer. So there was a tension between these employers wanting to use this tax credit and violating the EEOC laws. So the tax credit was underutilized as a result. So this opinion letter provides clarity about the requirements of the work opportunity tax credit and the consistency of those requirements with federal anti-discrimination law. So we tell you how you can still ask those questions without violating our law and use our tax credit. So that's really a great example of you know, how impactful an opinion letter can be that it really gives employers clarity on how to use this tax credit without violating laws because employers are also often faced with so many different overlapping federal laws. And that's so much to your point before, you know, when you were talking about the purpose of the EEOC and you and you said it in the context of, uh, you know, providing remedies, giving money to those who are aggrieved uh, under the EEO laws. I think there's a large part of the EEOC's purpose as well, and that is to, you know, provide guidance and provide information so that employees and employers will know how to act going forward, what they can and can't do before it gets to sort of an adversarial situation where someone is even aggrieved. It lets people know what the EEOC's position is on these important issues. Based on specific facts, and that's where it's different than normal guidance, where normal right. guidance is saying, here's what the ADA requires, here's what Title VII requires, as opposed to, hey, I'm trying to use this program, here's the issue I'm running into, getting that specific answer. Right. So the, the next letter was um, more of a, a technical letter regarding um, Title VII and, se and Section 707, which defines pattern or practice. The EEOC had previously filed lawsuits alleging pattern or practice uh, violations, uh, the systemic suits we were talking about earlier, without following the pre-suit requirements, such as a charge, attempt to conciliate, and having those um, issues tied to an actual discrimination or retaliation. So it was way uh, under the statute where the uh, general counsel's office was filing direct lawsuits just based on a policy or procedure of that company saying, you know, it violated pattern or practice without going through the process. So this opinion, and there was a lot of a lengthy history on this and a lot of uh, cases regarding the EEOC's filing these claims without ever having a charge. So this opinion letter clarified that lawsuits brought under Section 707 pattern and practice must go through the normal administrative process, which is a charge, that charge actually tied to that policy discriminating or retaliating against somebody, and then through the conciliation, then go to lawsuit. So that was, uh, it was a more technical one um, for, you know, litigators in, in this area, but, you know, obviously needed a lot of clarity. Um, yeah, the OWBPA then uh, goes yeah. from the, the technical to something that's certainly more substantive. Right, and so the, the, the most recent opinion letter we issued um, was under the Older Worker Protection Act, which is, um, you know, and most of your listeners know, it provides an employee may not waive any rights under the age discrimination laws unless the waiver is knowing involuntarily. And in, um, in these severance agreements or waivers, you know, you see the decisional units, 
um, of who's eligible or who's not eligible. So he, here's the issue, and this is another one where it really benefits lawyers. It benefits uh, HR professionals. So employers who employ employees overseas, um, multinational employers, uh, had an issue whether or not they needed to include some of their, their foreign workers in that decisional unit. So there was a potential issue that the whole severance uh, may not be uh, valid, or the whole agreement waiver may not be valid if there were, if the decision unit was wrong. So you know, for a company that had thousands of workers overseas but had similar workers here, do you include those workers overseas? And we clarified that it applies to employer American employers for U.S. citizens. Uh, for the ones overseas, they have to be essentially U.S. citizens to be part of that decisional unit. So it does not protect non-U.S. citizens working outside of the U.S. So, it, you know, it, it's again, it, it's a clarification, but it really gives um, attorneys and HR managers who are drafting these agreements certainty that they don't need to include those employers because the law doesn't apply to them overseas. And it says, well, here's who the law does apply to in America. And then here's who the law applies to if you have an American working in one of your factories overseas. So again, it really just uh, clarifies and prevents uh, a lot of additional um, potential issues there. Yeah, and it's important because, you know, OWBPA is a great example of some really technical requirements that employers need to follow if they want to have their severance agreements, their waivers and releases um, enforceable and effective. And so for the EEOC to be able to issue guidance on an issue like that that relates to coverage, for example, uh, it's, it's real important for, uh, for employers to be able to have that information. Yeah, and then the final one was on individual coverage health reimbursement arrangements. And like the IRS, I'm also going to um, not uh, claim to be an expert in these uh, health care plans. But essentially, it, it is another way, very similar to tax credit, where we give employers certainty how to use these um, health care benefits under the law without violating the uh, age discrimination provisions um, for older workers. So it's just another way to, to give programs that employers want to give who may be hesitant because of the complicated um, age discrimination laws or the other laws that we enforce. It just gives them clarity how to properly use it. That's great. And so you expect that uh, the use of opinion letters, uh, that that's going to continue with some frequency with the EEOC? I hope so. You know, I, I really do. I, I, you know, for, again, um, it's the same issues we faced at, at Wage and Hour. It's just it's getting the the opinion letters in the door. Um, you know, unfortunately, and we dealt with this at Wage and Hour, but we did get a good ones for employees as well. Um, but a lot of times, when employees write opinion letters in, they're actually complaints, and we have to refer them to our local offices. So you know, it really is not a tool just for employers to get an affirmative defense. It's not what it is at all. I stressed that when I was at DOL. We were able to get out um, a bunch of letters too to clarify issues uh, that favored employees and that were resulted in um, you know valuable information for employees as well. So it's it's for everybody. I hope it continues. Obviously, it takes a uh, commission vote. So um, all I can do is encourage everyone to review the opinion letters we've issued, um, review the the DOL ones as well, and uh, continue to submit them to both agencies. Great. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about some hot topics for 2021. Uh, here we are in the middle of February, and there's a lot being discussed and a lot that we will continue to be discussing when it comes to uh, the EEOC and employment law. Uh, and we know that every few years the EEOC uh, puts out its priorities 
uh, for the next several years. Um, and I know that we're at a point that you can't really comment uh, too much in terms of the details of what we can expect, but can you just give us a sense of um, what the process is again for determining that and, and when, if you can even let us know when we might expect some priorities or the new chair's priorities to come out? Well, yeah, there's two parts of that question. The first is um, our strategic enforcement plan, which is a document um, created every five years. And that sets the enforcement priorities and goals um, for the entire agency. And that is a document that is voted on by the commission and one that takes a significant amount of public input. So um, our strategic enforcement plan currently, uh, we're in the final year. So at some point, um, be on the lookout for information about how we proceed forward um, with uh, creating a new strategic enforcement plan. You know, I, I imagine and I'm hopeful that it's going to be a, a public process like everything else um, where people can tell us where the agency needs to go. Uh, as far as uh, Chair Burroughs, her priorities, um, she's uh, still uh, barely a, uh, a month in, and um, we are expecting her to release her priorities. I don't want to get ahead of her at all, but I can tell you, as Chair Dillon did when she got here, chairs release their priorities and, you know, talk about what's important to them. Um, so again, it should come out. And then obviously that will be a very important, um, her priorities will be very important uh, to all of us at the agency. And we look forward to uh, working collegially to, to move the ball forward um, when those do come out. So um, just be on the lookout for those. I know it's uh, a lot of people want to know where the agency is going to be going in the next five years or where the agency is going to be going in the short term with the uh, new chair, with some of the executive orders from the White House that certainly touch on the EEOC. And uh, all I can say is uh, stand by. And stay tuned, yeah. So let's, uh, let's hit a, a couple of uh, specific hot topics for 2021, pay data and pay data collection. Um, that's certainly something that's on a lot of businesses' minds. Uh, where's the EEOC on that issue? Well, yeah, let's take this in, in a couple parts here because there is the um, – the big one, which you're referring to, was the component two pay data, um, which was heavily litigated and finally connected. But before we get there, you know, the EEOC historically collects a lot of other data uh, from employees with, uh, in the private sector with 100 or more um, or federal contractors. <clears throat> Excuse me. So employers meeting these data thresholds have an obligation to provide this data. Each report collects data about gender, race, ethnicity, um, by job grouping. So we've been doing this for a long time. So the uh, component one data, which um, everyone is uh, familiar with, uh, for 2019 was supposed to be collected last May. Well, as we know, there's a lot going on. So on May 7th, the EEOC announced because of the pandemic, we were delaying all EEO data collections till 2021. So uh, on January 12th, we announced that the EEOC would start collecting the data for 2019 and 2020 for the component one this year, and I know this is very important for all the HR managers that have to deal with this and the payroll companies that may be listening. So in, uh, in April, we're going to announce the uh, collection dates and the ending dates for your typical yearly component one uh, data collection. But there's other data we do collect. Um, there's an EEO uh, 5, which is for public and elementary secondary educations. Um, that will be announced in July of 2021. August of 2021, we will announce the EEO3 data collection, which is for uh, local referral unions. And then in October of 2021, we'll do the EEO4, which is state and local governments. You know, the EEO 
three, four, and five don't get as much attention as the EEO um, one do because they're more uh, for certain sectors. But it's just going to be a busy year of uh, data collection. And um, our website for that is eeocdata.org. So um, really, for 99% of the audience listening, it's the component one, and that will be announced in April. So um, we encourage everyone just to start collecting the data now. The submission deadlines will come up shortly. Um, but the big one, obviously, was component two. And I know you've uh, talked about and a lot of people have written about the um, ongoing saga related to the EEOC for the first time requiring employers for 100, with 100 or more submit pay data uh, in a revised EEO1 component 2 form. Um, that made its way, that was supposed to be for fiscal year 17 and 18. We don't need it. It would be take a whole podcast to go back on back and forth on who was for that data and who was against that data and whether the data would actually work. Um, so essentially, um, in 2017, when the Trump administration took over, they stopped the data collection before it went into effect through OMB. Then the National Women's Law Center sued in April 2019, and then the court uh, here in D.C. ordered employers to collect, ultimately to collect two years of data of that 17 and 18 data of that pay data. It was eventually pushed back, um, and as of uh, February of last year, uh, it closed. So. We took all this pay data for the first time, and in July, the commission voted unanimously to um, fund a statistical study for that data. So we have the data. It was all collected per court order for those um, two years. Um, as of the beginning of February of 2020, about 89% of all eligible employers actually submitted the data, so we have you know, a very good um, amount of data. So the commission decided to send it to uh, the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine's Committee on National Statistics um, to conduct an independent assessment on the quality and utility of the data. So what um, CNSTAT, for short, these uh, members include experts in statistical and computational methods, survey research, economic, social, and demographic measurements um, who serve uh, on these committees. Uh, the EEOC has used them before to look at other data. So essentially, because there was... Um, so much issue and so many lawsuits about the utility of this data. The EEOC has hired a third-party expert who does this um, to look at the data, and they have the data as of July 1st, 2020. The report will be completed in by December 30th, 2021. So by the end of this year, they will have a full report, and at that time, we will analyze the report to see how to move forward um, with statistically addressing pay disparity. Look, pay discrimination is wrong. We have to enforce pay discrimination. Nobody agrees there should be any sort of uh, pay discrimination, whether it's under Title VII or the Equal Pay Act. Right. The disagreement was around how do you collect data to you know bring that to light? How do you find that? And you know, for now, although it was one of the hottest topics in labor and employment law for a long time, we just all have to sit back and be patient and wait for this um, third party to review the data and see what the report says. So I imagine. Once the report comes out in December of 2021, in the beginning of 2022, this time next year, we will be um, analyzing, and you'll hear from both sides about the that report. And will there likely be guidance issued as a result of that at some point in 2022, or is it still too early to, to know? It, it, it's still too early to say, but you know, you could be sure that we're committed. You know, if if we're paying for this report, if we're uh, using one of the most reputable. Uh, experts out there to do this, that we will have a robust discussion about the best way to move forward. 
Well, that will certainly be helpful and, and clearly answer a lot of questions uh, out there. Um, another hot topic, 2021 wellness uh, and wellness regulations. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot's been happening there, uh, particularly recently. Yeah. So you, you're, you're picking all the ones that have uh, long, long histories and lots <laughs> of litigation. So um, this will be, this is going to become a six part episode by the time. Geez, done I, I, all these topics you could do your own uh, single podcast on. So, so the, the wellness programs as a whole, you know, they're, they're programs given by employers to promote uh, health and disease prevention. The issue is some of these employers require, some of these programs require disability related inquiries, questions likely to elicit information about a disability or medical examinations, procedures, or tests that seek information about an individual's physical or mental impairments or health. We know what's the problem with that could violate the ADA. So, you know, for those people who um, don't want to have those uh, medical-related examinations or disability inquiries, then they, uh, it may not be fair to them because then they can't participate in these programs and get it, whatever the health programs are, get those incentives. So um, in 2016, the EEOC issued a final rule to clarify employer obligations both under the ADA and um, GINA. Um, about how employers can use incentives to encourage employee participation in wellness programs to obtain information without violating uh, the ADA or GINA or any of the other laws. And essentially, they set a 30% incentive limit before it became uh, involuntary, um, before an employer would have to, employee would feel they're, they're disclosing that against their will. So um, it was challenged by the AARP in a lawsuit, and the EEOC uh, lost that lawsuit on procedure grounds, and that 30% limit was struck. So um, for a long time, we were left with uh, no limit. So uh, last summer, the commission voted to move forward two new proposed rules through a commission vote. And then in January 7th, 2021, the commission published these rules. Um, for the public to see them. And essentially, in a nutshell, the new rules, instead of having that 30% threshold, it essentially said employers may offer no more than a de minimis incentive to encourage employees to participate. So we wiped out the 30%, went with a de minimis standard. Um, however, on February uh, 12th, the EEOC announced that pursuant to the Biden regulatory freeze, um, which was issued by the chief of the staff of the White House, that um, because this rule was not published before January 20th, that it would be withdrawn. And uh, I can tell you um, the only thing that I can say on behalf of the agency is the next steps for each rule are uh, under consideration. So um, again, uh, stay tuned on this one. The wellness um, rule, um, it's going to continue to be out there and uh, just uh, stay tuned because the, the one that was put out on that de minimis threshold um, was supposed to go out for a 60-day comment, but never did. So we just need to, again, um, watch what happens on that. But it is something that employees, employers, healthcare providers, everybody wants clarity on that. And uh, I know there's pretty much universal consensus around that we want to provide that clarity at some point. Yeah, and what makes it even more important, I think, uh, on this de minimis issue 
is not just for its impact on wellness programs, but employers are starting to think about now, and this will this will bring us to the next COVID-19 topic and that guidance, but employers are starting to think about whether to have mandatory vaccine policies or if they're not gonna mandate them, whether they should have incentive programs for employees to become vaccinated. And they're looking to, in large respects, um, the de minimis issue and, and what the position is on the wellness programs to be guided on whatever policies they may think about instituting for um, non-mandatory uh, COVID-19 incentive programs. That's right. And that's, that is um, one of the larger questions we're receiving where we haven't put guidance out yet on those incentives and I'm returning to work. But uh, because you brought up uh, COVID-19, yeah, I do want to Did talk about. Did you think about, I wouldn't? Did you think I well, would not bring up COVID? I mean, you've done enough podcasts on it. And I figured <laughs> you, you know you don't have anything else to say, but apparently do. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Um, so the EEOC, and before I got here in March, you know, put out guidance right away. They did public webinars, <clears throat> and was really a leader in providing uh, guidance in this area because so much affected um, the laws we enforce, and. Um, not just from a guidance perspective, which I know you've covered at length in all seriousness, um, the EEOC did so much outreach. We conducted more than 365 COVID-related outreach events, reaching almost 52,000 individuals on this guidance. So there's a, a, a need for this guidance. Our current guidance has covers such topics as disability-related inquiries and medical exams, confidentiality of medical information, hiring and onboarding, reasonable accommodations, pandemic-related harassment due to national origin, race, or other protected characteristics, furloughs and layoffs, return to work, age, caregiver and family responsibility, pregnancy, and um, vaccination, which I intentionally left for last because on December 16th, the EEOC updated its COVID-19 guidance to address how the administration or requirement of the vaccine intersect with the ADA and Title VII. And it was so timely because I believe we did it in the same week that the uh, Pfizer or the Moderna got the EUA, right. which brings up a whole other host of issues. <laughs> exactly. But, um, you know, our guidance on, on the vaccination, and I know you've covered, but it's just so important to reiterate that um, that the EEOC has really gone a, above and beyond in, in making tough decisions um, and putting that in guidance, like early on when, when it said that, COVID is a direct threat, right? So it takes out the whole, is COVID a direct threat or not, which is a step further than the EEOC went in 2009 with the H1N1 pandemic, which was the operating pandemic guidance for employers for so many years. So saying it is a direct threat, big step. The next thing was specifically saying that the, the it is not a medical exam to get you know, the vaccination, or it's not a medical exam to take your, your temperature, a thing you otherwise wouldn't be able to do without going through that whole specific industry's job description specific analysis. So I'm really proud that the EEOC went out there and said, you know, it's, it's not a medical exam. Also asking to show a receipt of a vaccination is not a disability related inquiries. Now, getting technical, we know the follow-up can be very, very tricky and complicated, but at least, you know, having those bold statements out there of the law, I believe really helped employers, you know, gauge on how they're going to deal with this. Also on the exemptions for the vaccine under the ADA, under um, Title VII for religion or pregnancy, going through examples of that and how it works. But um, so that's where we are. Our last uh, guidance was updated in December. Um, now, you know, it's the future of the guidance that really is what we need to be discussing now. 
So, you know, the EEOC is really going to deal with a lot of the post-return-to-work issues once the vaccination is widely distributed, opposed to DOL under the Families First Coronavirus Response Act and uh, Treasury with CARES and DOL as well. It was sort of the Band-Aid that was able to get everybody through those times. And with the EEOC's guidance, but now when people come back to work and you talk about long-term accommodations, it's really going to be on us. And, and so much of that, um, I believe, needs to be industry-specific. Our, our guidance so far really covers broadly when everyone's in the same boat, but certainly it's going to be different for uh, varying industries on who can come back to work, who's going to you know, permanently allow telework, who you're going to use that for, are you going to do that individual analysis, are you going to just say the, the whole... Um, this whole industry can telework forever versus you need to be back to work, you know, whether you're taking the vaccine or not, you know, we'll make accommodations for you or you're getting vaccinated. So that's where the EEOC needs to go. And we can't do that without stakeholder input. And, um, and I know the chair, the new chair believes this as well. So really looking forward to hearing from um, everyone out there on where the, um, the EEOC needs to go with the additional guidance. And I, and I will turn it over to you for a minute, because I know, you know, this is certainly something you talk about all the time. I'm just curious, you know, how we can best do this, because it's very, very important. It is. And, and I think employers, to your point, as well as employees, appreciated the lack of ambiguity in those bold statements that were made, uh, particularly in the December 16th guidance. And, and what's interesting to me is not only looking forward what other guidance issues uh, may come out uh, as the pandemic continues and the post-pandemic periods um, uh, start to affect return to work and other issues. But some of the bold statements themselves, I suspect, may change also because what, what may have been deemed to be a direct threat or something, you know, temperature taking or asking for a receipt for a vaccine may be acceptable in a particular pandemic mode that's not going to last forever necessarily. It's not going to last forever. And a lot of the guidance too that the EEOC did was based on, you know, we were able to take those bold steps as well because the CDC and HHS declared a pandemic, right? So they did the first step. And a lot of this, especially with the EUA, it's, it's responding to the leeway other agencies have given the employers and employees in dealing with this because we're just an unknown um, territory. So, uh, but, you know, you said it right as far as when, you know, there's not a pandemic anymore about who's that direct threat analysis and, you know, is an unvaccinated person a direct threat and how do you mitigate that as well? Um, but, you know, fortunately, certain industries have been dealing with this for a long time, mandating vaccines, healthcare industry, nurses, doctors, you know, those frontline workers have been dealing with this. So there is a good amount of guidance out there, but it was so unique to those individualized industries that have, you know, required vaccinations. So I, I think we'll have to learn a lot from, from there as well. But now everybody's going to have to face with, you know, what some of these industries have been dealing with for years. And when you take that second step, as I alluded earlier, okay, so it's not, you know, uh, my, did you get the vaccine? You're my employee. You say no. Yeah. Right. So now Follow-up question. Follow-up question. Now you're an ADA. Now we're, we're just, you know, we're dealing with you specifically and engaging in that interactive process and making that determination. Are you a direct threat? And then how could we, you know, mitigate it? And what do I require for you and your specific job for potentially thousands and thousands of different job descriptions? 
Yeah, and it's going to be interesting even outside the COVID arena because, you know, as we talked about, so many people are, are remote working by necessity. Uh, so when you're talking about accommodations for disability-related uh, uh, issues under the ADA, the fact that an employee or groups of employees have been able to telework uh, and in many respects do so productively um, is that going to change the need for employers to think a little bit differently about giving telework as, uh, as an accommodation, putting aside the COVID uh, context? And then forget about all the COVID guidance. When you're doing that individual assessment for telework, now we're going to get back into old-fashioned EEOC issues, right? Are you now discriminating against on age, on gender, on race, on religion? And it's it, two as far as you know, some industries that have furloughed a lot of workers, and bringing them back, people you may not bring back, what claims are you going to be susceptible there to? You know, when you're doing your return to work, are you going to have large swaths of a certain protected class, leave them out, and it just, you know, we'll be outside of the COVID guidance at that point. So you kind of go through our COVID guidance then to get back into our, you know, the analysis you would be doing normally. Yeah, it's the reverse riff, essentially, for the people who uh, were either laid off uh, entirely or, uh, furloughed, or, or as you said, teleworking, now you're bringing back, if not all of your workforce, how are you making the decisions about who to bring back and who not to bring back? So many employers we talk about, you know, think they're doing the right thing by telling the vulnerable population, you know, don't come back, it's too soon. Um, but without making individualized decisions, it, uh, it, it prompts some problems. Exactly. So, uh, Commissioner, the last few questions that I wanted to talk to you about uh, is on this outreach role. You mentioned the word outreach a couple of minutes ago, uh, this outreach role and, and compliance assistance with the EEOC. Um, I think transparency, and that's been a big word that we've been talking about this episode and, and the prior episode, part one, and I think transparency may change what I'm about to ask you, but from a perception standpoint, and I, and I find this question this issue fascinating um, when we talk to uh, government representatives and uh, agency officials there is certainly a perception out there that the EEOC has traditionally at least been employee leaning has been more pro-employee than um, than not what's your reaction to that generally well our the first word in the EEOC's mission statement is is to prevent you can look at that in a lot of ways whether it's through enforcement or through education I look at it through both but look we're a civil law enforcement agency first and foremost and um, we are the federal government and we are there to enforce the laws that um, Congress has passed and that's our that's why we're funded that's our mission um, and is to you know prevent <laughs> and remedy and we do that through a whole host of tools and enforcement being the most prominent. But, but, you know, as we've discussed at length, you know, there's a lot that goes into enforcement and making that decision. But, you know, I personally believe, and really from my time at DOL and in private practice, that, you know, although, yes, these are, this is a civil law enforcement agency, we enforce the law, we have federal investigators, we have federal litigators, you're 100% correct. But I believe personally that enforcement alone will never be sufficient enough to achieve our mission. That uh, education to, and outreach to employees and employers um, must be one of our key strategies in protecting the workforce and promoting compliance. Um, as you know, and everyone listening knows, the laws employers are required to comply with are extremely complicated. And a lot of times, even the best intentioned employers can break the law due to lack of knowledge. And I believe, and I've seen 
both in private practice and in my time at DOL and in my time here, that most employers want to comply with the law. They simply just need the tools to know how. Now, there's certainly a class of those who don't want to. And, you know, and, and those, that's, we need to be focusing our efforts there because no matter what you teach them, no matter what information you give them, they won't comply. But, you know, my compliance assistance view is that an educated employer who knows their responsibilities are more likely to comply and educated employees who know their rights are less likely to allow themselves to be exploited. And, you know, and I always say this, especially in front of uh, employer groups, the more your employee knows, the less likely, you know, the more likely, excuse me, they're, they're going to go complain to HR. So the more training, the more handbooks, the more you educate them on what you can't do, the more likely if that happens, they're going to go right away and it's going to end. And as you know, the real problems occur when, you know, these things go unreported or they don't feel like they have a remedy. So, you know, I believe, uh, you know, a big part of what we did at DOL and we do here at the EEOC is to educate both employees and employers as well. And yeah, I think, I'm sorry, I was going to say, I think it's a good thing. And I, I've been saying for the last several years um, to companies, to clients, there's a much smarter workforce out there, whether it's a product of just access to information through the internet, whether it's, uh, you know, agencies like the EEOC and the Department of Labor um, putting out more information that's readily available to the workforce, whether it's social media that allows collective discussion and collective activity. I think it's a smarter workforce out there. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'd like to think that all employers want to do the right thing. There's certainly the bad seeds on both sides, the employee and the employer. But I do think that outreach and compliance assistance uh, is a great thing um, so that employers and employees can at least understand what they need to to guide themselves for future behavior. Exactly. And, you know, we did oh, we had a lot of accomplishments in that at the uh, at DOL. And so Wage and Hour, we created new and small business toolkits. So we found in investigations that a lot of small businesses or new startups, you know, grow very fast or they just don't know what laws apply to them or not. So really providing the basics of here's the laws that apply to you. And here's how, when the laws apply, when you reach certain threshold, and here's just the absolute bare minimum, you know, in plain English, no legalese of how to comply with them. We even did uh, Fair Labor Standards Act cartoon videos, um, you know, on the basic coverage of minimum wage on uh, how to pay overtime. And, you know, with the graphics and they're really great. Watch them with your kids on a Saturday morning and so they can learn wage and hour compliance. But it's just things like that that really simplifies them and easy to watch for somebody who has no idea, who's not a lawyer, just worrying about their business to understand. And then we did uh, compliance assistance toolkits at DOL. So we did them for different industries. And you would literally, your industry, you'd go in there and you'd find out what law applies to you and you just click it. And then it would give you all the forms you need. You know, a lot of our laws have posting requirements. So we just give you the posters give you the, the basics. Uh, it wasn't unique to Wage an Hour. Um, we, we created the Office of Compliance Assistance Initiative, and there's two websites, and although these are DOL websites and I'm not there anymore, I'm still going to give them a shout out. Uh, worker.gov provides a centralized base of information for worker protections, and then employer.gov provides uh, worker uh, employers with all the information. And this is all your OSHA requirements, all your um, Wage and Hour compliance. So it's all there in in one place. So we made a lot of significant activity in compliance assistance at DOL. And I remember doing a whole episode on the app uh, when that came out from the DOL to calculate overtime. That's right. I remember that. Uh, 
So, but here at the EEOC, you know, there's yeah. a lot of similar programs. I'm still getting my feet wet as far as getting in, involved with them. But I, I do know that, um, as I said before, we did a lot of COVID outreach. We did a lot of generalized outreach. We did more than the EEOC conducted 3,800 outreach events last year, providing information to almost 300,000 individuals. We hosted a lot of joint events with employers and advocacy groups, um, reaching almost 22,000 attendees, leveraging other uh, networks. And then our district offices around the country have very specific uh, trainings and guidelines for um, issues that appear most in their area. I do want to talk uh, briefly about some of the programs that the EEOC offers in compliance assistance. Um, our TAPS, it's called it's technical assistance program seminars. These are done around the country. They're normally one or two days and um, they're done by the local offices. And it really just gives an overview about uh, rights, obligations, and detailed information about the laws we enforce. Um, we do customer specific training which is our CST program, where it's for employees, managers, supervisors, and uh, human resource professionals on how to prevent and correct workplace discrimination, and that's done through EEOC. Um, you know, last year we did over 300 of these events for 4,000 employees, and then one of our most popular one is the EEOC's Respectful Workplace Training, and this is specific to harassment. Um, we did almost 800 of those events uh, last year really gearing towards harassment and sexual harassment um, where the claims are significant. And then our, our largest one is the yearly Excel conference, which is the examining conflicts in employment law. Uh, last year, obviously it had to go virtual, but this is you know a pretty big uh, seminar that the EEOC puts on um, with private and public sector um, speakers from around the country. And, then, and finally, um, similar to the pages I was talking about at DOL, the EEOC has a small business initiative where it's that targeted information for small and new businesses, which is um, really critical. It's also a great refresher for those who know the law to kind of just go back uh, over the basis. So you know, this is very important to me. It's something I'm going to definitely focus on my time here. And just, you know, there's, there's no better educator than the person who has to, the agency that actually has to enforce the law. So, um, you know, there's a lot of efforts and resources will be put in this as well. But to the earlier part, we are still, a civil law enforcement agency, and you know that is it is our always a priority to um, help victims of discrimination. That's terrific. We have uh, and you have covered uh, such a substantial amount of topics and information in uh, two parts of this. I, I really can't thank you enough, Commissioner Sonderling. Is there any takeaway for the folks who are listening, uh, whether it's uh, employees, employee counsel? Uh, employers, in-house uh, attorneys, HR professionals, uh, any takeaways uh, in terms of the EEOC and, you know, how we will be looking at the EEOC in the coming months? Yes. And this goes to no matter who you are, you know, participate in our process. Um, we're a federal agency. Everything, a lot that we're doing is public. Listen to our commission meetings. When we have public hearings, you know, participate in them hear what we're doing. You could hear us, you know, when we have these commission meetings on policy or guidance, you could hear us debate to see where the, what the issues are to see where we're individual commissioners are coming from. Um, and then when we do rules and regulations and guidance, submit comments, that is your chance, no matter how you think, how great the guidance is or how great the rule is. If you think it's the best thing, if you think it's the worst thing, or if you think we just missed a lot, that's your chance to do that. And we, by law, we have to look at those comments and we have to integrate them 
we can't just ignore them because we don't like them. We have to address them. Um, we may we may say you're wrong, but at least we have to do it in a public forum. And then obviously, um, you know how I feel about opinion letters, um, submit opinion letters, and just participate in the process. You know, we are more than just a, a civil law enforcement agency, and there's a lot of ways the public can get involved, opposed to how it normally is. We're after the fact saying, you know, why did, why did you do it this way? You know, you didn't let us, there's no transparency. You didn't let us participate. And then, you know, we could show, well, hey, look, you had 60 days to comment. You could have submitted a comment. So it's just that public participation. That's terrific. Very helpful. Commissioner Sonderling, uh, thank you so much. I know how busy you are. I uh, really appreciate you coming on and taking the time to talk with all of us. My pleasure. And thank you for doing this podcast. Oh, sure. I hope uh, you'll be gracious enough to come back uh, again another time as well. Absolutely. I hope you found that uh, as informative as I did. Do you have any suggestions for future guests that you'd love to have on the podcast? Do you have any thoughts on future topics that you'd like me to discuss in future episodes? If you do, please continue to send along your comments, your feedback, your questions. I really appreciate hearing from everybody, and as always, I really appreciate you listening to this podcast. We are 91 episodes in. We are getting close to that magic 100th episode. Um, really looking forward to that. We've got some other special guests coming for you uh, in the next few weeks. So, again, thank you as always for listening, and until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive. <laughs>